0: Don't be afraid to take on new challenges. Um, Don't get so caught up in your core skill set that you don't experience different things. And then finally, recognize that not every opportunity is a promotion. Sometimes the opportunities are lateral. Sometimes it's an assignment that nobody wants to take.
1: how is it going ladies and gentlemen this is sean barnes i want to welcome you back to the way of the wolf our guest today is a gentleman named Gisani courtney we met at a chro event a couple of months ago he is the vp of hr for a fairly large organization and has his own podcast called My friend in HR, I could not think of a better person to have come on the show, talk about HR, talk about leadership development, organizational development, and leading across functional domains. Jasani, welcome to the
0: way of the wolf. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate it. I'm actually, I'm kind of starstruck right now. I'm feeling a little giddy. I've, I watched your podcast, and to, to be here with the awesome logo behind you, I'm I'm, I'm going to try to keep my, my starstruck-isms a little down. Uh, oh, man. Come control. on. I've listened
1: to your show so far, and you've only had five episodes so far, but came out just swinging. Your show is phenomenal. You are an absolute natural, so... I'm a little envious of the fact that you came out that great that fast. So so let's dive into leadership. And this is something that I've been seeing your content, you've been posting on LinkedIn, some of these events you go to, DEI, you're, you're very involved with various communities and you go to a lot of these events and you talk a lot about leadership. How did you find yourself in a situation where you are so drawn to conversations and networking and working with other leaders?
0: Well, to be honest, it, it I have to attribute it to my military background. Um, I went to Georgia Military College, um, went into the army as an army officer. So leadership has always been kind of part of the core, kind of the foundation of how I've operated as an adult, um, you know, the, the military, the Army. I think General Patton said, like, lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way, right? Um, and so I've, I've kept that to my core. So the whole concept of leadership has always been really, really important to me. Um, and as I, as I got out of the military and went to the civilian sector, you, know, you, you go into human resources and you, you talk about leadership. And a lot of people have the misconception that leadership is based off of an org chart. Um, it's based off of a structure and who's at that top box. Uh, and you realize that it's really not about that. There's a lot of people who have strong leadership capabilities. There are unofficial leaders. There are folks who don't have the title, but they have all the influence and in, in the, the the ability to get things going. If you're trying to change things, you got to get them as allies because they can actually help or hinder your your ability to get some kind of change happening. So, I, to to, to kind of dive in that and help organizations become more savvy in terms of leadership, what leadership means for their company and their culture has always been kind of a big thing for me uh, because it really all starts with leadership and your ability to guide and drive others towards whatever goal it is, whether it's in the military or whether it's a corporate strategic goal.
1: Yeah. And and I think that yeah, we are so aligned. Okay. A little bit of a backstory here. Whenever he and I ran into each other at, it was the networking dinner the night before mm-hmm. the CHRO forum. And um, so I've had a few conversations with y'all CHRO, and then we ran into each other. We started chatting, yep. started talking, and then we got on the topic of video games. I was like, oh, my God, I think we just <laughs> oh, yeah. became best friends. Yeah, we did. So, we did. <clears throat> yeah. so anyways, there's so much alignment here. But on the topic of leadership, one of the things that I like to work with people on and help them understand is that you're right it is not about who's at the top box on the org chart we all have the ability to step up and lead and it really comes down to the ability to inspire and influence others for the greater good of the team of the organization but there is still this this gap and it seems like in some organizations they have a vacuum of leadership from above and people on the team maybe they're they're a little bit hesitant a little bit nervous or tentative to to step in to that leadership role where do you think that comes from
0: uh, i mean the, the challenges with that are as unique as the individual you know there's some individuals who simply just they have a concept of what leadership is. They mm-hmm. the person that's on stage, the mm-hmm. person that is uh, that's up front, always having these public discussions, and they may be terrified to speak up out in public. Um, but in small coffee groups around the around the you know having a cup of coffee or a glass of tea, um, they have the ability to influence folks. Uh, so they don't really see themselves as the stereotypical corporate leader. Uh, and so then you also have those individuals that you know. They've had bad experiences with leaders, and so they don't want to be lumped into the to that category because they've had a, you know, people have a twisted viewpoint of leadership. You know, my title entitles me to authority and respect, and you know, while your title may may mean you know, cause people to have to treat you a certain way or you got to do certain things to you know, in terms of approvals. Um, it doesn't mandate respect Mm -hmm. um, because respect and and followership are two completely different concepts. Uh, So it it comes from a couple of different things. And some people just haven't had mentorship to really bring out that the best in them, you know, they people, you see it, you know, people like you and other folks, you know, introverts, I mean, sorry, extroverts who can go out and kind of, you have a five minute conversation and you say he or she has it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they may have that raw material, but, if they don't have a mentor or a leader or a supervisor who's truly you know geared towards bringing out the best in their people, they may not realize that their true purpose is to lead others, whether it's at work or in the communities or whatever the case is. So that mentorship always becomes a really really key concept in terms of in terms of uh, creating the next generation of leaders. It does,
1: and so this is an interesting topic. And, and I appreciate the comment that you just made towards me about the people that are a bit of, more of an extrovert and they and they just have. Have it. Right. I was at a CIO forum last week. Um, had a good conversation with a gentleman after the closing keynote that I was on, where we talked about what did we talk about this time? Oh, it was uh, building cultures and and how we can do that as technology leaders. In any event. After the conversation, he shared with me how much he appreciated my perspective and how excited he was to see somebody who was so passionate get up on stage and how that that's probably just who I am. And I I paused for a moment. And after you just said that, I had to reflect and think about. My history, the entirety of my life, aside from the past few years, I've been the hardcore introverted IT nerd that did not talk to anybody. I was a keyboard warrior. Really? Yes, 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 yes. And I stepped in and started leading human resources about seven years ago Mm -hmm. and recognized very quickly that I could not lead an HR team from my office as a keyboard warrior (laughs) and affect change. I had to start developing skills. And so when people say, oh, he's an extrovert, oh, this is just who he is, I'm going to argue that they are just skills. Let's take active listening for an example. You and I are having a conversation, you're nodding your head, eye contact, you're very engaged. These are skills that can be taught. Yes. Public speaking, a skill that can be taught. It is mortifying for a lot of people, especially introverts, to get up on stage but the skills can be developed. It has taken me seven years of practicing to get comfortable behind a microphone and get comfortable up on stage. And my little dirty secret is every time before I go on stage, my heart, it's <laughs> it, like I'm, I'm about to lose my mind. But whenever I get 20, 30 seconds in, I'm, I'm okay. Now, I share all of that because I think it's important for people to recognize that while they might not have the confidence or think, oh, my God, look, Jasani, Sean, they're so well-spoken. They get up on stage. It's like, that's just who they are, right? It wasn't who I was. I had to spend years developing these skills and being very intentional about it. So these leaders that are a bit hesitant, a little bit reserved, and they see a gap in leadership or a vacuum in leadership above, they can develop those skills. Mm -hmm. They can inspire and influence. And to your point, the people that outside of the working environment with friends and family, they just naturally take that leadership role. Mm -hmm. They already have that foundational piece where people look up to them and respect them. Mm -hmm. It's about building confidence in your corporate organization. And that is something that I think a lot of people miss out on because confidence is very real. We can be very confident in our personal life, but in business, Mm -hmm. especially if you have a a boss that is a micromanager, abrasive, aggressive, (laughs) it's very challenging to have any sort of confidence for fear of stepping on their toes. And it's something that uh, it's not easy to overcome those challenges, but it absolutely can be done. So in the work that you do, at your organization, do you help coach and guide people
0: into those leadership roles? Uh, absolutely, you know, and it's not just me. Let me be very clear: it's not, uh, you know, we have a great team uh, that I'm that I'm blessed to, to work with right now. But yeah, we all have our different niches. Um, there's another indiv- individual I work with who's over our talent team, and uh, he's got the academia right. He understands, you know, in terms of like, okay, here are the key concepts. When we talk about leadership, we need to make sure that we target when we create development plans. Um, I'm more of the Touchy-feely, you know, conversational. Let's 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 discuss what you're trying to get to, and you know, and I'm more of the the extroverted discussion. But I, I want to go back to something real quick before I forget. You know, one thing that folks, if, if you know, if there's anybody out there that that thinks that they that they are not a leader and they they struggle, um, one of the things you want to make sure that you do is is realize that there's not one stereotypical type of leader, um, and I think that's where a lot of organizations go wrong. Um, they they try to cut it off from they try to cut it off from from the from the same cloth. They try to say, oh well you have to you know you have to be this boisterous business development savvy otherwise that's not it. Um, you have to let people grow where they're planted you have to let people grow and, and use those skills. There's some individuals who are not, this boisterous get on top of uh, get on the stage in front of a thousand people. Um, there are other individuals who do very well in smaller groups, um, but their ability to lead, their ability to influence, their ability to drive change um, is no less, more, less important. So I want to make sure anyone who has any dis- has any concerns about that realize it's not always about the person who's out in front. Um, there's different types of leadership, and all of them have value. Um, but going back to your original question and comment, you know, it's really about. Figuring out where people want to go from a leadership competency standpoint, um, because again, not all of us all of us had really great mentors. Maybe some, maybe a person said, "Well, I'm not really good at public speaking, and and I'm really not, you know." And so the manager, instead of like looking for that what's what's good about them, just kind of latched on and said, "Okay, cool. Well, then we'll put you in another capacity, never even seeing or giving them a chance to stretch themselves." Um, because as we all know, whether you're talking about working out or anything like that, muscles only grow when they get to resistance, right? When you when you push against that. Um, and so, you know, maybe a manager needs to grab an individual and say, well, look, you don't have to get in front of an entire auditorium. Why don't you lead this one-on-one conversation with this employee about this? And The next time and after doing that a few times and they start mastering that, then they figure out, okay, well, maybe we can put you, in front, of, you know, in front of like two or three people. And then maybe we put you in front of some people that you trust and you have a relationship with so you can feel comfortable and it's not just strangers. Um, and, that, and that's where you know, leadership becomes this whole uh, you know, giving back, right? Just making sure that, you, that if you're a good leader, regardless of how it is, whether you're a boisterous extrovert or more of a refined introvert, that you give back and you, you, you give other people opportunity to lead um, where their strengths lie. But we like, but I love to sit down with leaders. I love to sit down with them and talk about like, what is your managerial style? What is your, what is, what is, what is, what is the paradigm you like to bring to the table? What is it that that makes you a good leader? And let's get the best out of that while at the same time reinforcing some of those issues or challenges to make you a better like overall leader. Um, but I, I love doing it. I love talking to people because at the end of the day, in HR, regardless of you know, a lot of companies love to say, oh, people are our most important asset." Um, but at the end of the day, half of human resources is human. Um, and we could talk about all the systems and stuff in the, in, in the world, but at the end of the day, it's about how do we get the best out of our human capital? How do we get the best out of our people? How do we drive results that are, that are important to the organization? while at the same time getting them down the path of personal career fulfillment. and once, once you realize those things aren't mutually exclusive, a beautiful marriage happens. It really does. And
1: there's a few things that I want to unpack there. I had to make some notes on. because. <laughs> Sorry about it's, that. No, no, no. It's, it's fantastic. So first of all, is identifying our own leadership style. In my journey into a leadership role, I've had a number of, of mentors and leaders that I've looked up to and admired. I've had some that i never want to emulate anything that they do but those that i looked up to and admired they had a very different leadership style than i do today early on one of my mentors a gentleman named stacy rocca phenomenal leader he had a military background and he had a a leadership style that was aligned with what you might expect somebody to have from a military background but he extracted the most out of the people on the team I always respected and admired that about him. And so before I was really in more of a prominent leadership role, I started thinking, oh man, that's working for him. Well, let me, let me try that. Let me do that. It, it did not work oh for my. me. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't feel natural for me. The people on the team were like, what, what is going on here? This is not Sean. Who, like what, what is happening here? And Uh, I realized after probably six months to a year, I was like, okay, all right, that's not really going to work for me. But what I can do is identify certain leadership qualities, traits, or attributes that he did embody and think, you know what, I like that piece of it. Let me see if I can incorporate that into me and who I am. So we can't just say I'm going to emulate Stacy Rocca, but there are certain components of how he leads that I really like that really resonate with me Mm -hmm. and feel true to my core. And I pull some of those in. So the leader that I am today is really a result of of Stacey Rocca and Jason Hitchcock and Ann Fox and David Crombie. And all of these people that I've looked up to and admired over the years, I've just pulled little bits and pieces from all of them. And quite frankly, there are people that have worked for me or peers that I really appreciate and admire the things that they have done. I pull on those traits and I incorporate it into who I am as a leader. And it is just as time goes on, it's just this evolution of Sean as a leader, just pulling in in trial and error and experimenting what works, what doesn't. Oh, that doesn't work with that employee. Let's steer clear of that. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us as leaders to understand that we have to lead every single employee in the way that they need to be led. We have to be malleable, we have to be a chameleon, because you need to be led in a different way than Jeff versus Jason versus Sally. And as a leader, sometimes undeveloped leaders think, oh, I'm the boss, you do what I say. (laughs) That might work in the short term, but on a long enough timeline, it does not work, so we have to check our egos and think. I've got to lead Jasani in the way that he needs to be led. I've got to lead Jason in the way that he needs to be
0: led. I, I, you you hit the nail on the head just now. It's that whole ego thing. Um, and and you know, look. I mean, let me start off by saying, you know, not every leader has an issue with ego, but. A lot of them do, and and a lot of them, you know, you see leaders where they feel like they gotta be, they have to be the smartest person in the room, and they feel like they have to, you know, rule by an iron fist and all these other things, and you know, it, I'll be honest, I've actually worked for an, I've actually worked for someone before who had kind of a hard handed management style early in my career, um, and it wasn't all bad, you know, but you know, you have to take the good parts and the bad. But the fact that you made the comment about that you realized like your, your leaders, your manager's managerial style wasn't working for you. Leaders have to have a certain level of like, I wouldn't say, it's not, it's not emotional intelligence, it's not EI, but they have a certain, have a certain level of, of, of awareness to, to realize that the, what worked for them may not work for the folks that work for them. Doesn't mean that they aren't capable of being leaders. Take myself for example. My team will, if you talk to anybody who reports to me right now and you say, what is the biggest challenge about working for Jasani or working with Jasani? They will tell you, oh, my God, his attention to detail sucks. Um, <laughs> they will tell you, hey, look, look, I'm in my <laughs> mid-40s. Uh, actually, no, late 40s now. I just had a birthday. Um, late 40s. And I'm OK with that. You know, that is the type of professional professional I am. I am a 50,000-foot view I will give you the long-term objective. Now, if you need me to figure out point A to point B to point C to point D or point A1 to point A2 to A3, that is not me. And I hire and I bring on people to the team that are way smarter than me um, in these areas. And you have to be okay with not being the smartest guy or gal in the room. Uh, and to be honest, um, if, you, if you're if you able to show that level of vulnerability and just you know tell your team, say, listen, Sean, um, I'm gonna assign you to this project. The reason I'm gonna assign you to this project is because we need someone with your detail oriented uh, mentality to take us through this this very, very technical issue. Um based on your experience and your expertise and some of the work I've seen you do before, I think you're the right person for this job to actually lead the team in this effort. Um I'm gonna give you the overall mission, but at the end of the day, we're gonna I'm gonna let you take the lead on how we get there and the day to-day um, transactions that that entail this. And so now, what did I do? I gave you you a mission. I told you what the mission was going to be. And I told you why you were selected for that mission. I'm kind of showing you, like, what does good look like? Um, you know, what is successful success like in terms of your management and leadership style and what do I expect? Um, and so therefore now you know like, okay, I picked you because of your technical expertise. So as you go off and start giving out assignments and you start getting that project done, you know, I want your detail. I want you to be detail-oriented. Oriented. I don't want you to look at me as your leader and say, well, because Jasani is this 50,000 foot view person, that is what the output needs to look like. I'm, he's trusting me to use my own skills and my own talents as my own type of leader. Um, but when leaders mess around and they say, be like me, be like me, do like me, um, because it's worked for, work for me, um, not only are they really hindering how their their subordinates, subordinate teams can flourish, but now all of a sudden you start having this whole homogeneous thinking, group think type mentality, which we all know doesn't always come, doesn't always perform well when it comes to innovation. Um, so I always tell leaders all the time, Yes, tell them what worked for you in the past. Tell them what nuggets that, you know, what ways that you, you know, ways they can avoid pitfalls that you, you've done as a leader growing up. But don't think that that's the only path to success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could
1: talk for hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, I could, love this. we Okay. Could. All right. So I'm going to go back to something that you mo- mentioned a moment ago, and that is really talking about leaders building the people on their team. So we're really talking about developed leaders being able to develop more leaders of the people on their team. It takes an element of self-awareness. It takes enough experience and time in the seat to identify what are Jason's strengths, what are Sally's strengths. Jason's attention to detail is above anyone else on the team. So I'm going to pull him in on this project that requires attention to detail and say, Jason, I'm bringing you in because of this we really need you to focus on this, this, and this. Here's what I know. You're great at this. Let's come together and let's make sure that we are able to accomplish the mission and whatever the objective is, right? Sally's attention to detail sucks, but she's uh, phenomenal whenever it comes to communication and inspiring and motivating people. What happens when you have a big project and you pair Jason and Sally up and let both of them work together. Now, this can create friction between the two of them because they're not going to see eye to eye on a lot of different things. But as long as they both understand what the mission and objective is, and there is trust between the two of them, Mm -hmm. you're going to see some magical things happen. And I think that's where a lot of teams, leaders, and organizations will start to struggle is they're butting heads, they're butting heads, and they're like, y'all just calm down, keep the peace, right? <laughs> this is ridiculous, right? Instead of making sure that there's alignment, and and yes, you and I are not always going to see the same thing, see the same way, but that's okay. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Diversity of thought is very important in an organization, I'm gonna dive into DEI for a little bit. This is a topic that is, it can be contentious in organizations. Absolutely. absolutely. Whenever people come in and, and you start talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think part of the reason it gets contentious is because so many people get hyper-focused on gender, on skin color, on things like that. I prefer to look at it as diversity of thought. You have a very different background than I do. I have a different background from Jason or Sally, and that's fine. That's actually a good thing because we need different ideas and perspectives to come together. I'm very curious to know your perspective. Whenever it comes to the DEI landscape, what are your thoughts on where we are today and where we are going with DEI? Whew!
0: Uh, that's
1: a galactic can of worms. Oh my I'm aware. gosh! Yeah,
0: that's that's a deep question. Because here's here's yeah. his was, here's what's interesting about your question. If you would have asked me that exact same question 18 months ago, my response would be a little bit different um, than it is right now. But you know, look at the end of the day. It's it's when I sit down and talk to leaders about DEI and and, and I'll be honest, I, I very rarely use the word DEI these days. Um, but when I talk about these types of, types of topics, my first thought is how do we how do I drive my idea home without scaring the bejesus out of everybody? Because no company wants to be on the front page or the, be on CNN or, or Fox News because they've made a misstep. And, and so, in terms of where we are right now. I think folks, regardless of where you stand on it, um, there's a misconception about DEI and what it's supposed to. Like like a, like a lot of great ideas, it started off well, but sometimes people take it too far. Yep. Um, and I know that that's going to take people off when I say go too far. But you, when it comes to a business who has business objectives, you you can go too far to the point where it becomes a distraction versus an add on versus an enhancement to your culture. But the first thing I like to tell people is there's not a warehouse somewhere with a limited amount of grace and consideration. So if I am more considerate towards veterans, or if I say, hey, we could probably be tapping into the the, the skills that veterans bring to the workforce or our disabled employees or, uh, or minorities, it doesn't mean that I'm taking away from anywhere anything else, and I think because of the way some policies and things have been written and the way things have been implemented, sometimes folks naturally go there because if we if we put more focus there, they're not focusing on on this. So people think they're losing something versus the gain versus the add. Um, but you you're all right. You know, it's really about diversity of thought, diversity of of different ideas, um, using our different experiences to drive to drive the discussion about what does innovation look like? What do our customers need? Um, And and to do that, you have to bring in different people. They all can't be Texas A&M grads, uh, you know, white male Texas A&M grads. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, you know, the demographics do play a part into it because we do have to, you know, kind of track data to say, okay, where are we maybe missing the boat considering the community in which we serve. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't always focus solely on, you know, okay, you know, are they black? Are they white? Are they Hispanic? Are they, you know, are they male, female? Are they LGBTQ plus? You know, it, it's it's not about that. It's about are we when we look at career opportunities, when we look at how we're posting our jobs, when we look at policies that are in our own organizations, are they helping all employees reach their full potential based on their qualifications and their work ethic? Hard stop, all right? There are there some policies that are historical that maybe we inadvertently have had over a number of years that may have a negative impact on a certain group having access to those same opportunities as long as they're qualified, right? And, and I'm one of those folks that I don't believe in the whole, you know, everybody gets a trophy, right? Okay, you, 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 get, you, you get a badge just for showing up to work. Um, showing up to work is the bare minimum. It is literally the bare minimum. Um, And one day we'll talk about promotability and all those other things. But it's literally the bare minimum. It's about, you know, when I hire a business development manager. And and I I did a test with some people. uh, And I said, when you think about a business development manager opening quickly, what pops in your mind? What pops in your mind? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? And after I got got folks past the defensiveness, folks admitted, right, okay, I'm thinking – White male in a business suit between the ages of like 31 and 41, right? Mm-hmm. And I forgot the specific ages. But there were, everybody kind of agreed to it with that. And I said, and, be, and it was a bunch of HR folks and executives, not even frontline supervisors. These are educated, smart men and women, and that's what they thought. Even the women, they, that's what, that, was their, that was their mentality um, about that. Some of the minorities that were in the room, they thought that. And they were HR people. And I said, so if we post a position, that's already our mentality. We already have a mental bias about who's qualified for that job. You know
1: what's interesting about what you were just saying? Females in that age range was the first thing that came to mind for me. Now, I wasn't thinking white versus black. I was just thinking females Mm -hmm. in the business development manager role. Why do you think that is?
0: Just historical. Stuff like that. Historical what we, th- reference, r- r- kind of w- w- well, w-
1: what we've seen. Historical historical experience helps build our frame of reference because mm-hmm. we've seen that historically, and we think, oh, well, okay, that's probably the norm. Mm-hmm. There's probably
0: a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, uh, you know, just to kind of p- compound on that, you know, there's a lot of studies that show that human beings we're, we're creatures of habit, all right. We we're creatures of habit. And once we've seen things repeatedly over, it becomes the norm. And once we get exposed to stimuli that are outside that norm, our brain has a reaction to that. Um and it's not always a violent reaction and it's just not anything about that, but it's just like, hmm, that's not what my brain is used to seeing in that scenario. And so same thing when we post jobs. If we're used to seeing it, and this is what we've always seen, and we go to we go to conferences and, and you know who's always there in these types of conferences. Um, I, I go to HR conferences. Who are, who's normally who's normally there? Mostly women, right? Because historically that's just been the mentality of, you know, who's in HR type roles. We now know that that is not the case. I mean, there's, There are lots of men that are in the human resources. Um, you look at business development roles and some of these other roles that folks have just historically in their mind just naturally put a man in that role. Doesn't mean folks are evil. Doesn't mean that they're sexist. Mm-hmm. It just means that, okay, now that we know more, let's do better. Now that we know more and we have more data, let's make sure that we are opening up this opportunity for all employees who are qualified for that opportunity. So opening up the opportunity, yes, I love this. Because
1: I started, whenever you talked about going to HR conferences, that uh, there's usually a lot more females than there are males. I I would argue that at least the ones that I've been to, it's kind of a 50-50 almost, maybe. I don't know, it's, it's pretty close. But whenever I go to technology conferences, mm. it's usually the, the introverted, shy, quiet, reserved males. Mm. And, and I think we can look at, at history and look at biological differences. Men are usually and predominantly interested in things, which is why they go into STEM fields. Females are usually interested in people. So they go into HR and education, and medicine and things like that. So, the biological differences between male and female, they have a tendency to, to uh, we'll say, focus or organize in certain functional domains. That does not mean you cannot have a rock star male nurse. We need to make sure that the opportunity exists for everybody to step in if that's something that they want to do. If you come to me and say, hey, I really want to be a nurse. Okay, well, I'm not used to that, but cool. Let's see what – this is what it takes. Here's the bare minimum. You have to have a degree or – you know, I, I don't even know anything about the minimum. But <laughs> right, right, there, right. there's going to be some bare minimums mm-hmm. that you have to meet. And I think – I'm going to get into DEI frameworks, and I really value and appreciate your perspective on this because one of the things that I've seen, and I've I've kind of grappled with because my mind works around data and information and things like that, and and I think that some of these frameworks, they may be – I'm not going to say flawed, but I think there's probably opportunities for improvement in Mm -hmm. how they report out. Mm -hmm. Because it almost seems that some of these frameworks say you have to have 50% females in leadership roles. You have to have X number of minorities in these roles. And it would appear that they are gauging your effectiveness as an organization based on equality of outcome instead of equality of opportunity. If you're hiring for an engineering role and you've got 100 male engineers and five female engineers, the likelihood of you finding a rock star engineer in a population of 100 versus a population mm-hmm. of five, it's going to be pretty significant. Now, if you need to hire 10 engineers, where does that leave you? So
0: what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I've never been a fan of quotas. Mm mm-hmm. OK. Never been a fan of quotas. Um, I run a lot of the D&I efforts um, within my own organization. And I, I will, as far as I'm concerned, I will never go to the recruiting team and say, we need to hire this many minorities and we need to hire this many females. Um, again, data is important. It tells us where we're doing well. Where we have, probably have some opportunities, um, considering the, the 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 community that you're in. Um, but for example, you know, let's say you have a branch. Let's, let's say you have a branch office in Wisconsin, and I say, and <laughs> you know, they're like, we need to hire fifty percent black employees in this field. Okay, just from available workforce, right? You're, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle with that, and then all of a sudden, you give an impossible goal. Your your whole methodology and your whole mission just starts losing value and things like that. I think it's more, in in my viewpoint, I think there's a more valuable conversation when you say, where can we do better? And are we, when we ask, when we interview, when we're picking resumes and CVs to review, are we having our own internal biases in terms of which resumes make it through, right? And so, you know, we got a lot of things with AI and folks, you know, like applicant tracking systems, and they're trying to make things easier for recruiters because God knows they need some help. But at the end of the day, though, you know, we just need to make sure that those things that we put in the process to help us bring in new talent, bring in the next generation of leaders, whether we're talking about nurses or we're talking about engineers, making sure that we're not putting our own implicit and mental biases into those processes, um, because just like most any, any system, junk in, junk out, and and you want to make sure that you know, for example, I will I will poke my head into a particular position, a particular position. I'll, I'll take a look at it, and I will, you know, I may ask a, a recruiter, I may say. Hey, I just noticed for this position that out of the 20 resumes that we forwarded to a manager, 18 were men and two were female. And we're in the Houston metro area, which is very diverse. And, you know, folks have talent, different folks from different strokes have different talents everywhere. So what's what's going on with that? Talk Mm -hmm. to me about your process. And sometimes there's a reason. Mm -hmm. But it's about us taking that extra step to understand that we as flawed human beings. Have those biases? Those biases do not make us villains, right? They don't make us evil, evil people. That makes us freaking human. And recognize that because we have these biases, we just need to be careful in terms of when we when we start going through things like CV reviews and, and picking people for interviews. You know, are we are we always cutting from the same mold? Are we always going through the same thing? One of the challenges that we have right now is within the maritime industry in which I belong to is we're talking about like how do we add more females how do we add more minorities within the mix um, and it's not necessarily that folks are intentionally excluding um, you know there's some of those, there's some bad players out there don't get me wrong um, but you know we we go through who's applied mm-hmm. so if we really want to change the face of an industry whether it's maritime or whether it's oil and gas or whatever the case is what are we as organizations doing to go seek that out. Because I will tell you, before I joined my current organization, I had no idea what really what the maritime industry did. And I can tell you a lot of, probably a lot of black professionals probably didn't know. So then, so how do we educate? How do we go out there? So there's these opportunities out there? Hey, instead of going to the known Googles and the the, the the known companies that are on commercials, you know, how do we go to HBCUs and add more diversity to our pool and then let's see who the most qualified person is? Does it mean just because we get an application from a particular location, That we're gonna necessarily hire them. They still have to be qualified, but let's make sure that we change our mental paradigm about Mm -hmm. what does qualified look like. Um, And I think as long as we can have that discussion and get away, you know, let 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 the data folks deal with the quantitative stuff. The folks who are people facing, let's make sure that whoever we're talking to in front of us, let's make sure they're qualified, and let's making sure that it has that we do our best to make sure it represents the communities in which we serve, Um, because not every community is the same. Again, I just with Wisconsin versus. Houston, Texas, two completely different areas. But I going back to my original statement, I, I qu- quotas are very dangerous um, if you are misused um, because then that becomes a litmus test for what good looks like. And it really shouldn't be about that. It should be about how do we spread opportunities to qualified individuals. Yeah.
1: So as you were talking through the recruiting and the candidates piece of it, I want to shift gears a little bit into the process of bringing employees into the organization. I have had more people than I can even count reach out to me. I've sent out 200 resumes, haven't had a single response back. Mm-hmm. I've done this. I've done, can you look at my resume? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And you had your last episode, actually, you had a recruiter come on and y'all talk through a lot of stuff related <laughs> to ATSs. Oh, and t- yeah. to that. <laughs> oh, phenomenal, man. It's such great stuff. Okay. So, but this is a very real challenge. And whenever you start talking about layering AI in and these applicant tracking systems or ATSs that you mentioned, there's a lot of, we'll say technology I, I, I don't know I'm I'm coming to interference but I, I don't know if that's the right term there's a middle layer of technology between the applicant and the hiring manager so there's there's applicant there's ats and then there's the HR recruiter slash manager, and then there's the hiring manager, right? So there's a few layers, right? Mm-hmm. And I understand the need for an applicant tracking system that can parse through the resumes and say, okay, do they have the requisite skills necessary? Because if, I'm sorry, what was what was her name? Um, Alejandra. Alejandra. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So she's talking about, okay, well, I've got a hundred applications for this role or 200 or even more for us. That is a lot for one person to go mm-hmm. through. So you lay a layer technology across the top of it and it might pull it down to, okay, now we've got 20 or 30 viable contacts. And one of the things that I've shared with people just from my experience and perspective is you don't know what ATS they're using. You don't know what their search criteria are. You have some ideas based on the job description, but you don't have all of this detail. and. I don't have any hard data to back this up, but I've shared with them that it's possible you are sending it off and there's certain words, key phrases, mm-hmm. formatting, that's kind of throwing it into the junk bin of the ATS when you could be the best candidate. My guidance to them is, yes, have a good resume, be prepared to send it off, but Look at other mediums to try to get in the door. Build relationships. Network with people. Have conversations. LinkedIn is your best friend. It is a free tool to advertise yourself, to build your personal brand. And a lot of people, I'm actually going to create an episode on this here pretty soon, but a lot of people, they're completely missing the boat because LinkedIn, you can build your personal brand, and it's more than just a... a, online cv for people to look at yes that's a component of it but respond to people's posts engage in a meaningful way and actually add value there's a safety director earlier in the year who had been struggling he would sent off hundreds of resumes no response at all it's like Buddy. Okay. Well, first of all, your LinkedIn profile sucks. Okay. (laughs) What is this picture that you've got? It's all pixelated. You've got sunglasses on. You look like you're fishing. You look cool, but this isn't Facebook, right? You need to have something professional. You don't have a banner image at all. How about you throw something up there related to safety, populate some of your information, and then start responding to people's comments on LinkedIn. And his response to me was like, well, I don't like engaging because most of these people are idiots. I was like, okay, (laughs) let's, let's park that to the side. Um, but if they are, let's just say they are idiots that presents an incredible opportunity for you to educate them. So it's shifting that mindset, which is very challenging. That's like going to someone who's depressed and saying, Hey, don't be depressed. Right. That that's, that's (laughs) ridiculous. But shifting that mindset. And I said, okay, just do this. I want you to, to respond to three posts a day. Just comment and leave insightful information. Start building your brand, start connecting to people at the organization. If you see somebody that's in your network at Halliburton, just shoot them a note. Hey, how are things going? Start engaging in a meaningful way and you build a brand and reputation because yes, you can keep firing off your resumes to hundreds or thousands of different job offers, but I think that leveraging tools and communicating and connecting with people in a meaningful way is a far better approach to getting your foot in the door. And for someone who's so focused on the recruiting and the HR side of it, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on all of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, so let's let's start with the first thing. You, you talked about the the systems and, and kind of the different layers that that separate a potential candidate or a potential applicant from the hiring manager. And so those 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 things do exist, and unfortunately, in most HR departments, um, recruiting, you know, there's one recruiter um, who's in charge of maybe twenty or thirty positions, and this is kind of to help folks understand how this works because. I've been out there. It's it's a cold world when you're looking for a job, especially if you need a job. It's one thing to be at it to be gainfully employed, and you're like, ah, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. So you start looking for opportunities, but for people who are like, I I just got laid off, or we had a we had we had drawbacks at the company, it's a cold world, and when you don't get responses, it 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 makes you jaded, and so to help folks understand, you, you recruiting is one of the most under understaffed departments in in hr um now i know some benefits managers and some hrs managers will argue with me (laughs) you know um but but usually there's not a lot and so let's say you have 20 or 30 positions that let's say 20 positions you have 20 positions that are open throughout a company and let's say over the weekend um you have you know let's just say only you know like 10 10 people apply uh for each position so monday morning you get to work there's 200 resumes Waiting, and that means you have twenty managers who are beating you up, saying, "Where are my resumes? Where are my resumes? I need this position filled." And so you're going through and you're reading them, and you're trying to trying to separate the good from the bad, and which ones are qualified and which ones aren't. And and unfortunately, you do have to rely on some systems to help out with that. You know, those old school Boolean searches where you know it searches with, okay, "Do you have a degree?" And if if we said degree is required on the job description, it does that. Um, and just just out of the sheer number. Um, it's very difficult in terms of mat- imp- uh, recruiters to actually go through every CV, provide follow up for every single person who applies. Um, you know, people get upset; they get that standard. Um, we thank you for applying, but however, we found someone who better matches the skills. Seems like everybody uses that same thing. Um, but you, you, your point about your, your point about networking and connecting and things like that—really savvy recruiters. And Alejandra mentioned this a little while um, on my on my podcast. She mentioned, you know, making sure you connect and you, you network. LinkedIn is a powerful, powerful tool. And like you said, it's freaking free. It's free. Now, I know there's some, sometimes people get out there and they think it's becoming kind of like Facebook, but I, I think LinkedIn has taken some steps to, to kind of eliminate that. Yeah. So it's still by far a very professional location, but get out there, connect, make sure it looks professional. Um, you don't have to be this network savvy, always at dinner parties kind of person to be successful on LinkedIn. There's a, there's a young lady I know who is, she's very quiet, she's very demure. Uh, if you get her at a party, she's she's probably not gonna be the most vocal person, but she's one of the most successful people on LinkedIn that I know. She has like over 15,000 followers. Um, she comments here and there. She connects when she goes to events. She's always getting names and connecting on LinkedIn. Um, now LinkedIn has the QRC code. LinkedIn, feel free to give me money, LinkedIn, for all this I'm giving. Uh, <laughs> but they have the QRC code that you can keep on your phone so people can just scan it so you don't have to go through the page. Um, and it's a very powerful tool, um, not only when you're looking for a job, but establishing your brand uh, when whenever you do eventually need a job. Because we all eventually leave a job. Either we get laid off, we resign, or if we stay so long, we May pass away at the job, but but um, but you, we all eventually leave a job, and so having that brand ready to go, and having those connections, and then being involved, um, being a thought leader, uh, being part of the discussion. If there's you know a lot of things that are happening right now within HRIS people, these are the people that are in charge of our systems within the human resources department. They're all about this AI stuff. So I know a lot of HRIS professionals that every time there's a online workshop on LinkedIn about AI, they're in it. They're they're commenting on that. So if they decide to move on to another opportunity, they're well-known and they're like, oh, my God, I know this guy. This guy was on uh, this panel. Uh, we should we should snap him up because he or she knows exactly what they're talking about. But you, you, you have to be you have to get yourself out there to some degree, um, even if it's not your natural thing. You don't have to be the party happy hour, you know, you know, always out there doing stuff. It takes very little effort. To put yourself out there, have a professional-looking brand, have a banner out there. Um, and, unless you want to send out a hundred resumes um, and and cross your fingers, um, go to go the old school route. But I will tell you, far almost any recruiter you talk to has a LinkedIn recruiter account, and they will even if you apply. That even the top ten candidates that that will apply for a job, they will go out and they will spend time to look at your profile and see, okay, number one, does it match what you put in your CV? Number two, are do you have the expertise that you say you do? And is there anything about the conversation that you're having on LinkedIn that makes you a better candidate? You know, uh, that makes you much more of a subject matter expert in terms of whatever it is you're trying to apply for. So, absolutely, guys, I recommend folks for folks to to take advantage of that free tool.
1: Okay. So all this networking that we've been talking about, I think it is important. Yes, you can be successful as an individual contributor if you are quiet, introverted, and reserved. If your technical aptitude is off the chart, you're the best engineer that anybody's come across, yes, you can be successful. However, it is much easier to be successful if you have some level of skills around effective communication and networking and things like that. We've all heard the phrase, it's not what you know, but who you know. I like to take it a step further and say that it's not who you know, but who knows what you know. Mm. So you can promote yourself, not in like an egotistical manner, but promoting yourself and your skills. And what better way to do that than to add valuable contributions in an online forum, or add valuable contributions in an organization. Now, these skills can be very helpful, especially if you have a mission or vision to positively impact the world around you or the organization around you. And many HR professionals that I've worked with and have on my team, That is one of their their missions. They want to be able to positively impact their team, their organization, and sometimes HR professionals will step into an organization where the culture is toxic. I'm just gonna go ahead and say the word. And it can feel like a daunting task to be able to shift the culture of an organization into one of uh, positivity and 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 caring and taking care of uh, of your teammates and your peers and things like that. Now, um, I'm very curious your perspective on if you step into a new organization, you leave where you're currently at, you go off and work for a small, mid-sized organization, you've got a lot of experience at scale, you step into a company and you think, oh my God. <laughs> What have I stepped into? Then it becomes your mission and objective to shift that culture in a positive direction. Where do you
0: start? Well, the journey for that starts before I accept a new role. Okay. Um, nowadays, with everything being online, you got glass door. You got a lot of things out there. Um, especially at this level. you know, Once you get to a senior managerial level role, um, you really wanna do your homework on the organization that you're gonna step into. So the homework starts at the beginning. Um, once you get to a point where you're like, okay, this is a potential opportunity. I've, I've mentioned it to the wife. I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? You know, especially if we have to move or we have to do something. Um, but you're doing your homework. You're finding out what, what are people saying about it? Um, this is where that network, that community comes in really well at. Because if you have enough connections, you either know someone at that company or you know someone who knows someone at that company. Um, and you can find out the real actual factuals about that. Um, but once, you know, so you accept it, you walk into a, you know, you step in, you got your boots on, and you're like three inches in, you're stepping mm. into it. Um, you're like, holy crap, what have I done? Um, you The, the first thing is, as, and, and I'm assuming we come at this from an HR professional standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I come in as a senior HR leader. The first thing is, never walk into an organization acting like you're, acting like you're God's gift to human resources and acting like you have all the all the answers.
1: I'm flashing to certain people that <laughs> I know, like immediately, Sorry,
0: yeah, they, they, yeah, but I've seen it. I mean, we've both seen it. We've seen those individuals. Very bright men and women, right? There's a reason why they are where they are. Um, but they're so eager to perform. They're so eager to come in and knock that home run that they forget that the first step of being a HR business partner is listening. Um, the man upstairs gave us two ears and one mouth so we can listen twice as much as we talk. Um, and we, we need to make sure that when we walk into an organization that we do a lot of listening. You take a pause and you listen. You listen to your boss. You listen to peers. You listen to frontline employees. You do your due diligence before you start coming, trying to do a root cause analysis. You, you need to take a moment so that way when you start providing expertise when you start providing that value that they hired you to do and you need to make change in some things that you've seen it comes from a position of knowledge it comes from a position of understanding versus oh this know-it-all you know I I hate it when people I hate it when I talk to to, to young HR professionals who've worked at other companies and they say well at such-and-such company we did this and such-and-such and And the first thing folks who've been at a company for 10 or 15 20 years is did did you notice a sign out front we're, we're not at that company anymore. And oh, by the way, there's a reason why you're at this company. Um, and, and so I always tell these eager HR business partners who come in and want to solve the world's problems when it comes to human capital issues is don't come into an organization, even, no matter how bright you are, don't, don't come in thinking you know all the answers. You might. And, and your, your, your initial hypothesis about how to solve these problems may be where you end up 30, 60, 90 days from now. You absolutely might be. But the reception when you start providing that consultative, that consultation to leaders will be much better received if they have the perception that you got there by listening to the concerns of the organization, get some of the historical knowledge, because the guys who've been there for 20 years, they appreciate the history. They help make that history. And if you bypass that and you don't listen to it, you very rarely will they, will, they, will they give you the time of day. But at the end of but getting really back to your, to your to your heart of your question about like what do you do when you see like a toxic and toxic situation um, I just did an article literally I just did an article last week on on LinkedIn about the, the true cost of toxicity within an organization and you just you 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 have to take into account you have to take you have to take into account like how they got there most companies did not become toxic overnight or most departments did not become toxic overnight. Usually, it's a lack of managerial courage at some point because somebody somewhere chose not to deal with an issue. Um, it's like a poison ivy plant or any kind of thing. You don't wake up with a poison ivy vine in your garden. It starts off as a little sprout, and you ignore it. You don't deal with it, and all of a sudden, becomes this big, massive vine and a big bush. And you just tell the kids, "Don't run over there because you'll 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 get itchy." Um, but you have to figure out like, how did we get here? What is the story? What is the history? And then you can start diagnosing uh, the, the problem. There's a, there's a couple of things people always do when it comes to diagnosing HR problems. They, they talk about, you know, oh, let's do, uh, let's determine, let's look at performance, performance uh, reviews and let's look at all these other things. And all that, all that stuff eventually comes into play. But you don't bring that stuff in until you've taken the time to do your due diligence. Listen, listen, listen. And then when you are done, think you're done listening, listen some more. Go back and confirm your understanding. I do, I do this with my wife all the time. And she, she cracks up and she's like, you're using those HR Jedi mind tricks on me. And sometimes I am. But it helps out. You, sometimes Sometimes we, the, the answer is not walking into the door trying to solve the problem. Sometimes it's really just listening. And then that way when you provide your advice to try to change that toxic behavior, whether it's because they've let the behavior go on too long, they – they feel like the person's invaluable. The person has a good relationship with the CEO or, or some senior level executive. So you're afraid to touch them. Regardless of how you get there, once you start providing advice and you'll be able to say, well, I understand that like 10 years ago, there was this thing when we bought this company and, and that's how this thing started. Um, people will actually listen. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Or this is what you're missing. But your advice as an HR consultant would be much more appreciated.
1: Well, you're building trust. That entire process that you just described, having conversations with 1, 2, 10, 20, 40 employees, mm-hmm. you are building trust with all of those employees. You're gathering information, you're pooling data together to have a more holistic understanding so that you can make a more informed decision. The problem comes into play when educated leaders step into a role and think, well, I've got my MBA. I know exactly what's going on. I spoke to Jason and Sally over here, and here's what we got to do to fix it. Okay, well, that's two people in an organization of 2,000. (laughs) Right? Right. And so that's one of the things whenever I stepped into human resources seven years ago, which there have been times when I thought, oh, my God, what have I done here? But it was – that was the first, I spent six months doing exactly what you said, having conversations with everybody on the HR team, having conversations with as many district managers, ops managers as I could, senior leaders in the organization, because I did recognize we had to make some structural changes to the HR department itself. Mm. When I stepped in, there was a team of, I don't know, probably about 19 or so HR professionals with seven direct reports that were managers reporting to me. But each HR manager and their team, they were operating completely in silos because the company had grown through acquisition. So, this company had an HR manager, a couple of people. This company had an HR manager, a couple of people. They kept operating as individual companies mm. as opposed to consolidating and saying, okay, Sharon, you run payroll for the entire corporation. You start creating those functional silos so that you can have depth of expertise. But I recognized that probably two weeks in, but I spent six months validating and verifying my thoughts whenever I went to the C-suite and said, here's what I know, here's what I propose we do to address it, and here's why. I was able to speak to, well, this happened three years ago, and here's the challenges, and here's why I think we need to do this, to your point, yep. That, that is what happened. Okay, yeah, well, this seems like that would address that issue. So I built trust with everybody on the team. I built trust with everybody in the organization. And then the senior leadership knew I had done my homework. I didn't come in in two weeks and just flip the apple cart over. It's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. But I built trust along the way, and it made the conversation much easier. Now, there was two people on the team that did not like the decision that I made, and as leaders, we cannot always appease 100% of the people in the team in the organization. If we can get 90 to 95% of the way there and take the time to explain to the other 5 10% why we can't do it this way, they might still not like it, but at least they'll kind of understand the logic behind it. And eventually, if they start to see things moving in a better direction, they can get on board with it.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I was about to say, I,
1: difficult conversations to have, but very important. And it is important to take the time.
0: Sometimes slow is fast. Jeez, you, you said something, and I think you saw my eyes light up just now. Leaders, a lot of times, they miss that part, explaining the why. They just well, you know, because I say so. Um, or they think they're communicating, but it's really ineffective communications. Um, really explaining the why. To on a grassroots level, something that everybody understands. Uh, far too often, I've been in HR for twenty years, and I will, and I've been in a few different industries, and I and I've seen it. I've seen where leaders will communicate a strategic change in direction or just the g- general strategic plan, um, and via email, and. You know, depending on who they are, depending on how eloquent they are, depending if they got a great internal communications team um, that can kind of vet that email and 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 help them help them, uh, you know, make sure it's having common I kind of like common folk speak. Um, they the, the level of effectiveness of that can, be, can vary, um, but that should never be the end result when you're trying to communicate what you're trying to do for the company. Um, if you're a really effective leader and you're trying to communicate a vision. You know, the, the best way to tell whether or not it's 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 done well is go don't go to peers. Don't go to other executives who've been in the other 15 meetings that you've been in um, when this thing was getting approved. Go to your frontline employees and say, hey, that email that just went out about this. What do you think? Um, and and see, see if they're able to, to truly articulate what what it is that what it, what it is that that's happening. Um, you know, and if, and if they can't or if you're finding. If you're finding overwhelmingly that once you get past a certain level of manager, the understanding deteriorates significantly, then you know that there's a, there's a problem at some level and you need to make sure you work on that. But far too often, I've, you know, you see it's, it's almost a funny meme on LinkedIn all the time. There are a lot of employees like here's the strategic vision. You know, it's, it's the end of the year. 2024 is coming. So there's a lot of strategic visions coming out right now. And the basic employee who's just clocking in trying to do their job doesn't get it. And when you don't, when you're not able to articulate, here's where we're going. Here's why we're going. And once we get here, this is what it's going to do for this organization. If you don't take the time to do that, yeah, most employees will follow along. You know, most employees are, are, are followers and they'll go along with it because everybody needs a paycheck. People need to pay their bills. But if you're able to rally the troops and say, hey, guys, we have the we have the ability to move from number, number two, to number one in market share in this particular area here's how we're going to do it production we're going to invest to make sure that you guys have the equipment you need to increase production levels by 20 business development we're going to invest in a new crm tool it's going to help you keep up with your clients and do this and do that and oh by the way human resources we're going to need you guys to recruit talent because it's not going to happen without our people and you're doing it and you're getting everybody involved and you're saying hey this department this is why you're important this is why you're important my god the amount of synergy that you're able to get and i don't use that word synergy often um because I know it's a big college word, but the amount of synergy you're able to get and get people behind your mission, whatever productivity you thought you were going to get, you'll get much more out of that. Um, but if you just send out an email and just this big long email, because it's a big manifesto and you've been thinking about it for, for, for two months and you send it out and you think that's that's it, not only are you missing out on an opportunity to make sure you, it resonates with employees, but you're missing the opportunity for more production, better profits, better bottom line and better overall results for whatever it is you're trying to do
1: you know like so true everything that you just touched on and and i think that there's another element to this because i've seen organizations that they'll push a a big campaign with great uh, marketing ads and like all sorts of stuff they push it out to the employee comp population and it it falls on its face they're not able to make the progress that they thought they would And I've had this realization over the years that you can have engaged the best third party marketing firm to have all this great phenomenal content and posters and, and all of this stuff. But sometimes you have to also invest in showing the people what it means, teaching them how to do whatever it is you need them to do. And one of the things that that came to mind for me recently is like, I, I don't have any children, but I would imagine whenever they get to, I don't know, around one or so when they start learning how to walk, you can't just show them a commercial or a poster and say, hey, go do that. <laughs> you have to actually like, sh- okay, move their feet, hold their hands, show like show them. And I think it's the same way with employees, right? And I'm not trying to say employees are analogous to children, but at the end of the day, you can't just say, okay, here's this thing, do it. Now, some people in the population and the employee uh, population, they can say, oh, cool, perfect. And they will go make it happen. But there will be others that They're not doing it already, and that's probably for a reason because they don't know how. So it is important to invest in helping them learn and develop those skills and for the senior leadership to embody whatever it is that you are trying to push out. Because if you have all these posters and ads and all this stuff that's going out to the employees, but the leaders aren't doing it you know, it's going to fall on like, Oh, Oh, okay. So I'm supposed to do it. But my <laughs> boss, John, he's still going to be an ass to everybody. Like, no, that's not, that doesn't work. And so I think that's uh, an opportunity to, to tie this back into organizational development. And it's not just HR touchy feely stuff. Because whenever I talk to some executives about leadership development, that's where their head goes. Oh God, i tell people to do a job. They need to do a job. Right? Well, You can actually pay people to do a job and invest in developing skills and soft skills like we touched on at the beginning are skills. Active listening can be taught like these are skills that can be taught and developed if you are intentional about it.
0: I I couldn't agree more. You know, uh, people, you know, people are used to the the comment kiss, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Well, I have a different version of kiss. It's CISS. It stands for because I say so. Right. And so a lot of leaders like to manage off of that. Well, you should do it because I said so or because this came from my boss. This came from the C-suite. So you should obviously make this a priority. And frontline employees really, they don't care about strategic decision per se. Um, I hate to generalize, but most don't. They want to know how does this impact my work? Is this going to be more work? if there's more work, is there more money coming? Um, but really grassroots kind of kind of discussions. And so you have to be very careful when you say, we're gonna launch this brand new initiative and open this new division, because the first thing that probably 30, 40% of your employees are thinking is like, oh my God, it's more work. They're coming out on this in Q4, so I guess I can't take holidays off for my vacation. And that's just because the communication wasn't thorough enough to explain, here's what we're doing, here's how it's going to impact it. And, oh, by the way, that one email is not enough. you got to kind of dissect it between your major business units. How does this impact you? What is your role? What is your role? What's the timeline? So that people can absorb it in a meaningful way. Because we as human beings, unfortunately, we're, 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 we're very cynical at times. And, and if you, in the absence of data, we will tend to go in the most, direct, most negative direction possible. Um, especially if you're an employee who's not really been all that engaged that much. Um, but when going back to the organization development aspect, it's 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 so important for leaders to make sure that they are focusing on what the needs of the organization are going to be. And what is it going to take to get there to accomplish those goals? Because these things don't magically happen um, when you need to help, when you talk about talent. You talk about developing people. When it comes to talent, you have two options. And we can make a bunch, we can I can give you a bunch of fancy HR buzzwords, but you got two options. You can either buy it or you can grow it internally.
1: I did not plan that. My last <laughs> episode covered that topic. No, way, really. I okay. swear to God.
0: Yep. <laughs> well and it, it's still true. It <laughs> <laughs> a week later, it's and still play, true. <laughs> but but it is. I mean, it, it, we can say, Oh, we succession planning nine sales. We can do we can talk about a lot of different HR things. But those are your two options. You either go out and buy it on the market or you grow it internally the more cheaper and more long-term is to grow it internally. Um, but at the end of the day, you definitely want to make sure that you are preparing your organization for what comes next. You need to staff for those open positions. Now you need to make sure that you are filling the positions that are out there on your website now. But if you're a real strategic leader and you're people focused, you're taking a look at that 2025 plan now and saying, okay, this skill set is coming. Our customers are saying that this is going to be this evolving technology. Do we have HR? Do we have this skill set available? If the answer is no, then you either what? Buy it or you grow it internally. If you're going to grow it internally, that is an investment and you have to start that. But unfortunately, when budget season happens, what's the first thing to get cut? Training. Um, all this soft skills training. We'll, we'll invest all day in technical, technical training, but... We, we, for some reason, leaders, even some HR leaders, some leaders deprioritize those soft skills. You know, I I know I was working for one organization some years back, and they had a large business development contingent. And one of the things that this one BD person in a key location was missing was kind of the presentation skills. Now, now they had the gift of gab. They can go golfing. They, you know, they, you know, they. it was in West Texas. So being able to hunt was really great, you know. Um, but sometimes you've got to put on your suit. You've got to get in front of a bunch of folks who are going to invest in this. And they have to be able to speak and, and project, project information to a group of people. And we determine like this person sucks at presentations. But if they're able to hit their targets with mediocre presentation skills, just think—if we invested in their presentation skills, some real training, where 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 could they go? Where could they? Where, how how well could they operate? And unfortunately, the decision was made during budget. Well, HR, you can go develop a PowerPoint presentation and, and show them how to do it. Um, okay, hopefully, you have somebody on your staff that's really good at that. But really, there's a lot of great solutions out there. Anyway, end of the story is this individual. They they cut the they cut that training out of their budget because they didn't want to invest they didn't see the value in it versus some other things, and they lost a major major client and unfortunately when they lost that client it was kind of a linchpin to a few other things um, so it was when they lost that client some other clients who paid attention were like well if they went there maybe we should go to the other other direction as well, um, and it all came down to the strength of the presentation um, and who knows what could have happened if they would if that individual would have gotten. The, uh, the right training that, that they needed.
1: So when organizations, we'll say of the size and scale that, that you work with or for, when you're looking at developing the employee population, no doubt you, yourself, people on your team have the ability to coach and develop and mentor. And you guys probably have your own learning and development team, right? Okay. So at what point does an organization start to analyze and say, we need to go outside and bring in a third party for dedicated leadership development or uh, organizational development. And then how do they weigh that out? Does it make sense for us to lean on our internal Learning and development team or engage a third party because they have a highly niche specialized skill set in developing leaders in this realm. What does that process look like at an
0: organization of your size? You know, so we do have we, have, we do have our own learning organization um, and uh, I they do some really brilliant things down there. Um, and so I'm going to speak from kind of a second hand <laughs> receiving their services that they that they provide. Um, I think. Your first question, in terms of like decision to go external versus internal, um, what I've seen is is there you know you have to decide whether you actually have that curriculum, whether you have that skill set, do you have individuals who are certified to do that training, um, already internally because that's always best. Um, number one is cheaper. <laughs> number two, they have the cultural awareness of your organization, so they can put that spin on it um, versus somebody coming in from the outside. You hire a third party, they may be very good at what they're good at, but in most organizations, you know, everybody has their own dynamic, and, in, in, and depending on what you're training on, that could be that could be really important to mm-hmm. to, to distinguish between that. But um, but if you have the option, if you have the capabilities internally, I would always say do use your internal assets. Uh, sometimes it might be a joint effort. Mm-hmm. Um, you have you there's a specific thing we need to train on. Uh, we have some individuals who are really really great at converting. Uh, learnings into like our you know the company's methodology in terms of how we do things um, but we don't necessarily have that technical expertise so sometimes it's a collaboration between that third party and uh and our internals but there are times you just don't have it you don't have it you don't have the capabilities nor do you have the ability to really disseminate it and you don't have the skills to actually train on it because having the technical curriculum mm-hmm. I can sit here all day and say I have a presentation to show you but if I'm not well versed on it, I can't deliver that training very well. There are some folks out there, some of these third parties that are—that's literally all they do. And uh, and if if it makes sense and and it, it's worth the cost benefit, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it's about achieving your goals. It's not about checking a box and saying, "Okay, we delivered that training." It's about what's the best bang for our buck, and then how do we how do we make sure that the training accomplishes the goal whether it's a technical learning or whether it's soft skills training. Uh, Because at the end of the day, it does no good to go out and hire a third party, a high-end third party, spend 30, 40, 50 grand on something and it's crap Um, and it doesn't doesn't mesh with your company. Um, What works at Google may not work at my organization. What works for a small mom and pop shop in West Texas may not work for a East Coast uh, uh, consulting firm. And so and so, you have to make sure that it does fit what it is you need. Does the culture play a, play a part into it? Does a specific industry play a part into it? And you go through a couple of checklists to determine okay, so where can we get this? Sometimes the answer is internal, sometimes the answer is external. But the one thing, the one piece of advice I, I would always tell individuals is never do like a one size fits all.
1: I think it speaks to the importance of awareness. We've had almost an underlying theme throughout this this episode that we're recording of self-awareness for leaders, awareness from the leadership perspective of the needs of the organization whenever it comes to the development side of things. Do we have these resources in-house? Do we need to go external to be able to bring in and engage a third party for it? And I think there's also, I'm not going to say a stigma, but there's some challenges with some of these third party firms because they go into it operating with a mindset of, we have to do this at scale. So they develop curriculum and leadership development firms. Whenever I started doing a lot of research on this a couple of years ago, it was almost like we've got very similar curriculum and they just cast this wide net. I'm going to teach you all these different leadership skills. Well, when you get in there, some of the employees, their eyes might start to gloss over because I know this. We've been doing it for years. I know this. Oh, yeah, that's one piece of advice that's kind of value added. Right. And, And so I think there's value in the partnership approach that you just touched on, where you are able to collaborate with your internal OD teams and bring in external so that they can start having some conversations and saying, what are you guys seeing? How should we tailor this program to impact maximal change for your team, for your organization. And I think therein lies a little bit of a sweet spot and we'll say the magic when you're able to have insights into the challenges of the organization and be able to come in and speak to that. An example that I'll share, a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit in on an executive strategy session for one of our customers. And the first day I was able to witness all the the projects, the initiatives and the things that that were going on. Well, that evening I got on the phone with my team. We rebuilt our entire presentation spent. I mean, none of us really slept that night and I got (laughs) up the next morning and delivered it. At the end of it, it was a couple of hours long. At the end of it, the CEO stood up and just shared how much he appreciated that everything we touched on was exactly what they needed and when they needed it. Now, The presentation that we had built before that, there was some alignment, but having the opportunity to sit in and listen for an entire day, and then reconfigure the presentation to touch on all the things and challenges that I had seen the day before, that had a significant impact and resonated with everybody on the team. So there's tremendous value in having that awareness if you're internal or external and being able to make sure that you're coming in and providing value based on the needs of the organization as opposed to just casting this wide net and saying, hey, we can train 30,000 people a year. Cool, but what is the actual impact that you are having Mm -hmm. on the population? Okay, all right. One last thing. I'm going to play a little audio clip for you. And I want to get your perspective on this. And it's all about organizations that they send this message of, well, we're like family. <laughs> okay. So let me see if I can play this where you can, where you can hear it. Metaphor for companies was the family and you'd hire
2: them and you'd be like, we're a family. You know, we look after each other. And it's kind of baloney because, you know, it, uh, you'll lay someone off in a way that you wouldn't you know your sister it's like you want them to work for you like they were a family member for free and cheap but you're not really prepared to treat them like a family member if you're honest and so really the professional relationship is like a sports team and if you want to win a championship you got to have incredible talent at every position and so we say look we're like a professional sport not like your kid's soccer team but no like a professional sports team where we pay people well we want them to win And if you have one bad game, you don't, like, lose your position. But ultimately, you're fighting for your position every year. And that's how we feel about it. As long as we're honest about it, it's exciting because then uh, you can play really sophisticated sports. So to do a blind pass in soccer and you just know the person's there, that's an art. You need great teammates, you know, that you are so well rehearsed. And, you know, so to do that, you need great talent, and that's fun to be around. This would be a classic
1: metaphor. So that was Reed Hastings, the CEO of,
0: of Netflix. Thoughts? Well, <laughs> I I I actually agree with a lot of what he said. Um I, I nothing nothing makes me roll my eyes more is when I hear, "Oh, we're family. Oh, we're family, We're like a family. You're work family." No, no, let's let's be clear, right? There's a reason why they call it work. Um, um it, it's 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 it will never be family. And and I think we where, where you start to lose, especially nowadays, um, people workers, employees are so cynical because companies uh, they they try to put on this metaphor like we're family and they're not they're not family. They won't treat you like family. Um you won't be as forgiving as you would be with family. You don't get as many second chances with your employer as you get as you would with your family. Um, and I love actually, I love the analogy of this, this, this we're a competitive sports team. Now be careful with that because I would say, well, can I get a multi-million dollar contract? Uh, <laughs> um, but, But but I love it because it's like, okay we're trying to be competitive. We may have to make decisions because we're trying to get to a certain spot. Um, Sometimes those decisions may impact people and moving, moving, moving pieces around. Um, But, you know, we're going to do our best to be a best in class organization in this particular in this particular space. I think what what today's worker is looking for is that we're looking they're looking for authenticity. Just just call it like it is. Call it like it is. Be a straight shooter with me. Um, There's a reason why, you know, you hear stories about some companies, some large companies um, where you order products from online, um, where you hear that they have a very rough work culture. Right. And and you hear like, oh, massive layoffs and these things like that. Despite that, people still apply for those jobs. And there's not a shortage of people Mm -hmm. taking those roles. Why? Because people know when you work at this company, this will be your experience. They're going to pay you well. (laughs) <laughs> but you're gonna earn every cent that you you get. Um, they're not putting on, oh, we're gonna be treat, we're gonna treat you like family. We're gonna treat you like this. I think the only exceptions are some of those small mom and pop sh- shops where they you may they may actually have family work there. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think I think what, what today's worker is looking for is authenticity. Be honest about what it is they're walking into. Let them make the choice based off of facts, not a propaganda speech um, about what you think the company is. And and be very careful because in almost every engagement survey, depending on who you have talking to people, um, executives tend to give much more of a rosier picture about the state of affairs of a company than the average frontline employee. Um, And so you got to be careful if they're the only ones – Touting your propaganda because it tends it tends to be a little bit more positive, and it's it's not because necessarily executives have a more optimistic viewpoint. It's just they have a different perspective. But uh, yeah, we, we need to get away from that thing. Um, employee number one, it's not true. Um, you may you if you're lucky, you may have the opportunity to be blessed with with great coworkers. If you're lucky, you may even have a lifelong colleague and lifelong friend. Um, if you're lucky, you might have relationships that you're able to carry on throughout your the rest of your professional career. That's if you're lucky. That's not always the experience most workers have. So to any employer who may be listening, get away from that. Because number one, it's not true usually. Number two, employees aren't buying it. And number three, if you want to make them make their eyes roll back in the back of their heads and, and, and really be, you know, really trying to kind of give you the subtle middle finger. Say we're like family. And then all of a sudden you do layoffs Um, because they'll be like, oh, but you just did this great speech saying that we're like family. Um, I I think that's where a lot of employer employers tend to go wrong. Yeah, I think so, too.
1: And in my experience, obviously, oil and gas is highly acquisitive. I've been a part of many, many integrations, and acquisitions over the years. And a lot of the the smaller mom and pops, they do treat it like family. And to your point, many of them have family working for them, which (laughs) creates different challenges when they are acquired by a large publicly traded organization, especially if daughter is reporting to father and Mm -hmm. like, there, you know, there's, there's challenges there. And so, you know, we see this in smaller organizations and yes, it's, it's important for the employees to trust one another, to lean on one another, to care about one another, but there's still, there's almost a line of, okay, my employees that, that work for us now, um, I care a lot about them and I want them to be successful. But also, whenever I think about my relationship with them versus my relationship with my mom or grandmother or brother or something, like, it's different, right? That, that's just the reality of it. And so as we're building our team I'm making sure that everybody that comes in to our team is very aligned and understands where my mission and vision is for the organization. And when I say aligned, I want to make sure that they have a similar vision and mission for what they can accomplish, for the impact that they can have on a world. So when everybody on the team is aligned and moving in the same direction, there's naturally gonna be trust that is gonna be built over time. You're gonna start caring for one another and you're gonna look out for one another. But at the end of the day, it is a business. We're creating a high performance team for a reason. The drivers for creating that high performance, some businesses just all about making money. Some are about positively impacting the world around them or positively impacting the generational legacy of everybody they work with. The driver doesn't matter as long as everybody understands it mm-hmm. and can get on board with it, and it resonates with them,
0: that is what's most important. I think that the trust factor is, is just huge. It's it's so huge, and and people, there's a, again, there's a lot of cynicism, right? There's a lot of cynicisms from both sides of the fence. You know, you have executives who, you know. Again, they only surround themselves with other executives, so it's almost like the emperor's new clothes, right? Oh, he's wearing the finest of linens when they're really naked. Um, it, 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 You know, they have their own mentality about how things work. And then you got employees who feel like, oh, they're always trying to screw me over and they're always going to mess over the, the little guy. And some of that may be true on both sides of the fence. But – at, at the end of the day, I mean, folks just, folks just want honest talk. They just want, just, just, just shoot with me straight. Is this going to be a crazy work environment? Is it going to be, you know, a structured, okay, nine to five and this is what it is. It's very, very regimented or is it going to be pure chaos every day? You know, and if you tell them and you give them all the data so they can make the best choice for them in their careers, it, it, it absolutely is true. Um, And, and, Well, I'm going to say true. It it absolutely makes things a whole lot better in terms of establishing that trust. And and the last thing I'll say about that is the trust is such a big deal because when you do inevitably have to make tough decisions, right? If you're in a leadership role long enough, you will have to make some tough, gut-wrenching decisions. Um, You know, the way your people will respond to you when you have to give that will be highly dictated by that. If you've shot straight with them, if you've done right by them, not, that doesn't mean always placating to them and giving them what they want and everything's a democracy. It's about you were a fair manager. You gave it if – if whatever you could tell them, you told them up front. Um, you, 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 you implemented and you executed policies the same. There was no favoritism. If you have a trend of being a straight shooter, then I sit with you and I say, Sean, I have, I have a rough discussion to talk to you about today. Uh, unfortunately – you know, there's been a change, and your job's been impacted, so unfortunately, today's your last day. Um, it's not going to be a nice message. I don't care how cool of a manager I've been. Um, they have to go home and explain to their family that things are about to change, so that's going to be a rough discussion regardless but if if but if I've been full of b s the entire time we worked together and i've only and i've I've demonstrated to you that I've only been about myself and I'm only about the bottom line, it doesn't matter what I tell you. Because you're going, because that behavior and that lack of trust that we've built is going to impact how you perceive that situation. I've had to lay off, uh, to this day, I had to lay off an administrator um, because of budget cuts. Um, And she told me, she's, you know, I told her and and she could tell on my face that it was, it was, you know, it was a message I had to deliver. So I didn't shy away from it. But she told me, she's like, if you're telling me this, I, I, you know, this sucks uh, because I was getting ready to buy a house. So this changes things. But it's fine. Um, I could tell this is rough for you, so I'm just gonna, and the conversation went a lot better than it had to. To this day, we still have communication, um, even though I was the one who let her go. Um, Being the friendly guy that I try to be, um, I always tell people that I form relationships with at work, be careful being friends with someone in HR, because we could be having beers tonight, and tomorrow I get an email saying there's been a change in direction. Um, And that's very difficult being an HR professional, um, having to let go of a friend. Uh, and and it's, it's very, very difficult. But again, if you have that trust and you've built that, I wouldn't say family, but that positive relationship where, again, it's not about going out and having drinks and inviting people to your home, but you've just been that steadfast, keep it keep it simple, keep it straight, be honest with them, treat them fairly. If you've done that and you've built that trust, when you have to deliver that, those negative messages, it's better received, if I can say that. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's still, it's still a sucky message.
1: It is, I mean, it's rough. And I'm flashing back to when the pandemic hit and the company that I was working for at the time, we had to lay off almost 60% of the company. Wow. We uh, normally, our churn was anywhere from, we'll say 80, 90 employees a month type of a thing, just hires, terms, stuff like that. And there was gradual growth before the pandemic. But we went from that, to having to figure out how many employees we could lay off and how fast we could do it because of the pandemic. We had to hibernate the company overnight. Mm. And so, going from terminating, say, 80 employees a month, we had to completely rebuild our offboarding process or optimize. God, I hate using that word in this <laughs> situation our offboarding process to be able to get 150 to 180 a week out the door that was extremely gut-wrenching for me one because this was a global pandemic we were sending them off into the ether historically when layoffs occur okay this is rough this is brute this is challenging but they you know they can go into mining they can go into truck driving something like that when the pandemic hit it was they're going off into the ether and mm. like we wish you the absolute best of luck that was very challenging for me what was even more challenging and probably the most brutal and challenging decisions that I had to make as an, as a leader in my career was I had to hang on to everybody in HR because we had to process the terminations. And at the very end, I had to make cuts on my HR team. It ripped me to shreds. But the people that we let go still to this day speak to me. They have conversation because they understood and there was trust and they knew where my head was at. They knew how much I cared. They knew I did everything I could to get them a, a fair, reasonable severance to try, to try to take care of them, to transition them out. As leaders, we have to care about our employees. If we are only focused on ourselves, our titles, our bonuses, our employees are going to know. Mm -hmm. And while they're still going to do their job, it's highly unlikely that they're going to go above and beyond for long periods of time for a boss that they know does not care about them. So you have to care as a leader. Take the time. Build the relationships. You have to be cognizant of Becoming too close of friends of the people on your team. That is a delicate balance in art that took me many years to figure out because I used to be really good friends, especially if you go from peer to boss, mm-hmm. when you used to go out for drinks all the time and hang out and then all of a sudden you're the boss. It's very challenging to kind of create that dynamic and create enough distance And some employees, you can be a little bit closer to some, not so much, but again, we have to adapt the people on, on our teams. So phenomenal conversations. I am so glad that you came to join me and have this conversation. And I'm looking forward to many, many more in the future. What is the biggest lesson that you have learned as an HR professional over the years?
0: Wow. I would probably say is don't be afraid to take on new challenges. Um, Don't get so caught up in your core skill set that you don't experience different things. And then finally, recognize that not every opportunity is a promotion. Sometimes the opportunities are lateral. Sometimes it's an assignment that nobody wants to take. Um, one, of the, one of the things I've been very blessed with over the course of my career is most of my jobs and most of my positions have been managing international staffs and the international teams. Um, but it all started because I took an assignment in Africa that no one wanted. Um, and because I had that on my resume, it opened like, oh, well, if you're willing to do that, would you do this? So, and it wasn't it wasn't a promotion. Let's be very clear; it was not a promotion at all. Um, but at the end of the day, though, that opened up so many doors. So, you know, just remember that opportunity knocks in a bunch of different ways. Um, some are some are loud, some are more subtle, but be open to all of them. And just in the and I, I and I know I said that was going to be the last one, but then the last thing is, you know, when it comes to your own career fulfillment, right? You write your own story. It is your career. It's not your boss's career. It's not your company's career. It is your career. And you don't let anyone else write your story. You make sure you own your career. Don't be a victim. Be victorious when it comes to map, mapping the landscape of your career. Don't sit around waiting for someone to hand it to you. And, and don't be afraid to take challenges. Because your 40, 50, 60-year-old self will definitely thank you. Jasani. Thank you.
1: How do people contact you?
0: Oh man, if they want to contact me, there's a couple of ways. Number one, you can always follow me on LinkedIn if you can spell my first name right. Um, but yeah, but you can always follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. I get pings all the time. I will respond because, like you, I, I appreciate my my uh, my network. Uh, number two, I'm I'm on Instagram. Uh, my friend in underscore HR. Um, I put some funny clips out there. I put some other tidbits of knowledge out there. Sometimes I'm traveling. I share some some traveling trips. Um, but then also, you can always follow the podcast, uh, My Friend in HR. It's on it's on Spotify. It's on Apple, wherever you get your podcast fix. Um, and last, you can always reach out to me at myfriendinhr at gmail.com. If you have any questions, um, I'm more than happy to make sure that you guys have all the tips you need for career fulfillment. But I appreciate the opportunity. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go home and tell my wife. I was like, hey, guess what? I did it. Mama, we made it. Because uh, I hung out with Sean Barnes for a little while. But uh, thanks again so much for the opportunity, Sean. This has been a great discussion. And, and I look forward forward to future collaborations in the future, buddy. All right. I appreciate
1: it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have for the show today. We will make sure to have all of Jasani's contact information in the show notes. Feel free to reach out to him or contact me. I will make sure that I get you connected to him. That's all we have. Thank you.